So this coming Friday, which of course is Christmas Eve, we will read the story of Christ's birth from the beginning of the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. It's a story uh, that most of us know and love. In fact, it's a story that most of the world knows, uh, at least in the outlines, at least in part. It's the story of the inn with no room and the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's the story of the shepherds in the field watching their flocks by night and the angel of the Lord who uh, appears to them with good news of great joy. Luke's story of that first Christmas is beautiful and powerful and poignant. It's one of the most famous uh, and surely most told stories in the history of the world. And it comes, as I said, at the beginning of the second chapter of Luke's gospel. But I actually think that the, the first chapter of Luke is just as wonderful. The first chapter of Luke contains the stories of the events leading up to Christ's birth. Uh, the key players include the angel Gabriel and Jesus' mother Mary. They include Mary's older relative Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. The first chapter is, is packed with these vivid characters and this really important theology which gives us uh, essential context for the life and the ministry of Christ. And so throughout the Advent season, uh, this season of preparation for Christmas, we've been reading from the first chapter of Luke. In week one, we read the story of the Annunciation. That's when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she will bear the Messiah. And then last week, we talked about uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth when she sings a song known in the Christian tradition as the Magnificat. And one of the things that I love about the the first chapter of Luke is the way that Luke uh, offers us these glimpses into the emotions that these biblical characters are feeling, especially uh, during a time of year when emotions can be pretty big. <laughs> uh, you probably know what I mean. For some, it's all about the joy of the season. You know, you can think of Buddy the Elf. <laughs> Whatever else is going on in their lives or in the world, uh, people like this uh, can't help but be joyful. I tend to fall into this category. Uh, back in week one of the series, we talked about, about joy in the context of the story of the Annunciation. While some people uh, need encouragement this time of year, you can think of old man Marley from the movie Home Alone. Uh, our family just watched this one yesterday, actually. I don't know if you remember him in this story, but he's the misunderstood next-door neighbor who was estranged from his family and friends, and he needs Kevin's uh, encouragement to reconnect with his loved ones. For those who feel alone during the holidays or who are uh, feeling on the margins in some way, the holidays can be especially difficult. And what we talked about last week was uh, encouragement in the context of the story of the Magnificat. Well, this week we're talking about uh, a different emotion as we wrap up this series, and we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week. Uh, before we read, there is some, some context that is in order. So early in chapter 1, uh, before the story of the Annunciation, in the only passage we have not read during the Advent season from the first chapter of Luke, uh, the angel Gabriel appears to a man named Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is a priest in the temple, and Gabriel tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son who will be a prophet of the Messiah, and uh, the angel says he's, quote, going to be with the spirit and power of Elijah. 
And Zechariah is confused about this, if not exactly incredulous, and he asks how it could possibly be so, uh, since he and Elizabeth are getting on in years. And Luke tells us that Gabriel does not much care for Zechariah's reaction. Here's what Luke writes. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. So what we're going to do now is uh, finish our reading of the first chapter of Luke, and we're going to pick up the story on the day these things occur. So this is Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 51 to 66 right now, and then we'll come back and read a little bit more later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Luke. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for this passage to, uh, to really make sense, we need to understand the role of Elijah in our Judeo-Christian tradition. It's not something necessarily that we Christians grow up learning a lot about. Elijah was a, a 9th century B.C. prophet whose career and reputation and end-of-life circumstances make him uh, a unique figure in our salvation history. According to 2 Kings, Elijah did not die Instead, he ascended to heaven in a whirlwind. And according to the next-to-last verse in the last book of the Old Testament, God says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so what happens is that over the years, Elijah uh, came to be associated with the arrival of the Messiah. It was thought that Elijah would uh, return to usher in the Messianic age. In Jewish tradition, uh, it is customary to place an empty chair for Elijah at the circumcision of a child. And at the Passover meal, uh, there's an extra cup of wine that's poured for Elijah, and an empty chair is set for him. Some scholars believe that when Jesus uh, takes the cup at his last meal with his disciples, uh, which is to say when he introduced the, the sacrament of Holy Communion, many scholars believe that it was the Elijah cup that he took. And in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, in that enigmatic story of his transfiguration, Jesus overtly connects John the Baptist with Elijah. 
All of which is to say that when the angel Gabriel uh, tells Zechariah that his son would be a prophet, quote unquote, with the spirit and power of Elijah, the old priest understood perfectly well the role that his son was destined to play so that on the occasion of the child circumcision we just read about when custom called for an empty seat to be placed for the prophet that would usher in the arrival of the messiah old zechariah knew that that something uh, significant was in the air something momentous was in the air as a priest he was a steward of the tradition and if his son was the new Elijah, then he knew that the arrival of the Messiah had to be imminent. Now, uh, at this moment in our salvation history, God's people had suffered under the oppression of foreign adversaries for centuries. One foreign conqueror after another had, had subjugated our faith ancestors. And in the first century, of course, that oppression was at the hands of the Roman Empire, but not just the Roman Empire, also the political and religious elites who benefited from the exploitation of the poor and the marginalized. The promise of a Messiah in the first century offered hope to those who desperately needed it. Now, of course, that message of hope resonates in, in every place and every time, because regardless of specific historical consequences, in every era there are those who are in need of a message of hope. The holiday season uh, brings out the Buddy the Elf in some of us, wrapped in the joy of this time of year and all that it means. While some of us can relate to old man Marley in Home Alone, who needed encouragement during a season when so many are celebrating with uh, family and loved ones. Well, there's a, a third character from a beloved Christmas movie that exemplifies the emotion that is captured in our passage for today. George Bailey is the protagonist in my favorite movie of all time, which also happens to be, probably not coincidentally, a Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And if you've seen it, you know that George is in despair. He feels like a failure. He feels like he can't win for losing. He feels like everyone in his life would have been better off had he never been born. And theologically speaking, the only solution for despair is hope. Now, I, I pray that none of us are hurting uh, as much as George Bailey is in that crucial moment when the angel Clarence jumps into the water to save him. But if you're in need of a little hope right now, you've come to the right place at the right time of year. And you're about to hear the perfect reading for those who are in need of hope. This is the prophecy of Zechariah, as it's known. It's called the Benedictus in the Christian tradition uh, based on its opening words. This is Zechariah's song uh, at the circumcision of his son after God has done this great thing. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he says, talking to his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit And he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. I can only imagine the emotion that Zechariah must have felt when he spoke this prophecy. As an aging father, knowing that his son was destined to play a crucial role for God, perhaps more so as an aging priest, knowing what his son's ministry would mean for God's people who were, who were desperate for hope. These verses, which conclude the first chapter of Luke's gospel and set the stage for that beautiful account of Christ's birth, are rich with meaning and with emotional depth in the context of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their baby. But much more to the point for today, they're also rich with meaning and theological depth for every Christian and every place and time, because in addition to all of those Old Testament references, in addition to the allusions to Elijah, which for the most part are lost on us today, Zechariah's prophecy offers every single one of us a word of hope to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. God, through old Zechariah, promises us mercy and peace and goodness and light. Whether we identify right now with Buddy the Elf or Old Man Marley or George Bailey or some other biblical or literary character, some other movie character, if you're watching Christmas movies this time of year, if we are in need of hope, then the season of Advent and our annual celebration of Christmas offer us the hope that truly is at the heart of the Christian message. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin and redemption and eternal life. Our faith in Christ puts us in a right relationship with God both in this life and in the life to come so that no matter our circumstances, God is with us. No matter the challenges that we're facing, God is with us. We need not despair because God is with us. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Our title for this Advent sermon series has been Comfort and Joy, as in tidings of comfort and joy from one of my favorite Christmas carols. Uh, It may also be the most misunderstood title of any of our beloved characters. Uh, Chances are, God rest ye merry, gentlemen, does not mean what you think it means. (laughs) Or at least, I 
certainly misunderstood it until I read about it a couple of years ago. Written in the 15th century at a time when church music was decidedly somber and almost always in Latin, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen was written by commoners, and it was written in English, and it was written with this decidedly upbeat melody that people could even dance to, which was not really a thing back then. It became immensely popular. It eventually found its way into the church. It was eventually published in the 19th century. But the thing is, uh, language changes over time. Merry today uh, means happy, right? Which Christmas certainly makes us, to be sure. Merry Christmas is, I think we're saying happy Christmas is even another translation of that phrase. But when it was written, uh, Mary actually meant mighty. Robin Hood's merry men may very well have been happy, but their original description was mighty. And that's not all. Uh, rest, when this beloved carol was written, did not mean uh, take a break. It meant to keep or to make. And of course, the carol is intended for both women and men, which means that if we were to translate the title of this carol from uh, old English to the modern vernacular, we would say, may God make you mighty. <laughs> may God give you strength. And that, friends, is why the tidings of this season offer us comfort and joy. We can be mighty because God is with us. We can be mighty thanks to the incarnation, thanks to Christmas, God makes and keeps us mighty. God makes us strong and keeps us strong. Because what gives us joy and what offers us encouragement and what provides us the hope that nothing else can is that God came to us as a baby born in a manger to save us. You'll have to come back Friday to hear that story. Thanks be to God. Amen.